Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Take the difference. I, look, I would have probably made it a different way. The difference between good and great. A lot of people want to be good, and a lot of people can be good. There's a huge difference between good and great, and that's where all the juice is, man. Like that's the people that don't that don't accept that, that that was good enough. Oh, that's good enough. We'll be done. That start was good enough. That was be that'll be done. And I imagine it's the same thing on the golf course. Oh, that chip, I know I got that chip down. I'm good enough. Like, no, you've got to do it again and again and again and again. Like excellence requires you to be be able to do it on your worst day, not your best day. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell. That's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L to this number. Three three four four four. You'll get a download right away. Are you one of nearly seven in ten Americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings? Do you dread your mornings? Let's change that. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can that can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Some sleep. It gives you Z's. So our guest today, uh, I've known him for quite a few years, but he's the head coach of uh, Carmel Swim Club, Carmel High School. 35 straight girls state championships, 19 boys state championships. He's been national uh, team coach of the year. He's uh, in the uh, Indiana Swimming Hall of Fame. Uh, first team in 20 years to have both girls and boys national championships in the same year. Uh, this past year at 15 athletes and alumni compete at the Olympic trials and two Olympians, Drew Kibler, Jake Mitchell. I'm sure we'll get into that. Our guest was uh, all American swimmer at IU and uh, he has a podcast titled uh, off the deck uh, wife, Emily and his sons, William and Nicholas our guest is none other than Coach Chris Plum. Coach Plum, man, thanks for doing it, buddy. Yeah, happy to be on. Uh, definitely always been a fan, Dr. Bell, and this is a great time and happy to be on with you today. Well, let's start with a, a really difficult question. I mean, you know, is this is this going to be the Bills season? Oh, you want to start with my favorite topic. <laughs> I'm feeling good about the Bills. You know, we got our boy Josh Allen. He's tearing up the league. And if he's in your fantasy, you, you felt pretty good. I think he's a monster. And then like the defense is starting to play well. And, you know, you could take a boy out of Buffalo, but you can't take the Buffalo out of the boy. So just, uh, I'm excited. Super and you're, pro- you're, you're part of them Bills Mafia, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Like I try to go to at least one game a year, if not two, I watch them every Sunday. I got the NFL ticket. And that's the only reason I have direct TV and my wife can't stand it. And, uh, but I, I'm a diehard I was there for four Super Bowl losses, so I felt that pain. I felt the pain of being um, a crappy team for a long time. And like living here in Indianapolis, I just watched them like they stunk and then they got Peyton Manning. And then it was like they were awesome for so long and then they stunk for a year and they got Andrew Luck. I was like, I couldn't believe it. You know, they got these amazing quarterbacks, but now it's kind of like reverse. We finally got our quarterback and they're kind of in that uh, trying to figure out what to do here in Indy. So what do you, what do you think it is about Buffalo bill fan though? The bills mafia. What do you think it is about them? Well, I mean, there's a couple things. There's not a whole lot like in the city beside in pro sports, I mean, I guess you have the Sabres, but the bills have been there for so long. They've never have won one. So like this, I think Buffalo just has this place of like, they, everyone just kind of, I don't know, just like thinks they're a second world city or third world city in some ways, like it snows all the time. And so we kind of have like this chip on our shoulder that everyone thinks that it's not a nice place. And like, that is our pride. That's what we do and what we love. And every Sunday in the fall, it's, it's just the place to be. It's just part of the community. It's part of who we are. Um, it's just part of the city. And just having success in my 
teens just really brought that out of us because in the 80s, they weren't very good. And so it was like the pride of the city and like on a larger scale, it was a steel mill town. And, you know, once the big steel cities, you know, they left, you know, they had to find their identity. And so, you know, it was just kind of this, this place, but it is a wonderful place. I love the people there. Uh, still my, my family, my dad, my brother, sister, um, they, they call it home and I love visiting there. It's, it's a really nice place to be in the summer. Sometimes in the winter, it can be, uh, can be a tough place, but it is a, uh, diehard Buffalo Bills town, hundred percent. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. And I've, I've, uh, I've been up there, so not for a game, but, um, it is, man. It's a really cool place up there at uh, Canisius College for a couple of visits and speaking, and yeah, it was good, man. Yeah, you got to get to a game. It's a whole other thing to get right. to a tailgate, and uh, you know, was my um, got a former coach who's, who married my sister, but he what he was from Indiana, and he became a Bills fan after he went to a game, and he lives there now. But uh, you know, it just it just once you see it, you kind of you can begin to understand. Mm-hmm. So let's start with this. I mean, this year you had two Olympians and I mean, I think it just gives a, um, a testament really to like the power of USA swim because you've had so many incredible athletes, men and women come out of, you know, Carmel swim club. And so this year, and I, I basically want to start with like Jake Mitchell, right? Cause, and I want you to be able to tell the story because it was an iconic Olympic trials. I mean, something I've never seen before, when it came to swimming, I've seen it kind of in track and field, but not to that level. And I, I won't do it justice. Can you lay mm-hmm. it out for us about what happened in the time trial and everything that, that went into it, especially from your perspective? Yeah. So just to give a little backstory here on Jake, uh, Jake grew up in the program. I think he came in here in seventh or eighth grade. So I've known Jake a long time. And Obviously, I saw something special in him in eighth grade, and he just he came back on somebody in a four hundred IM like I've never seen. Like he just had this will to win, um, and then he had a great high school career. And like we thought we were going to make the Olympic team in twenty in twenty twenty, and he was going to be a senior in high school. And then the pandemic hit, so I was like, well, you know, there's no better place for you to go than to the University of Michigan. So he goes to Michigan, and then you know, they had a lot of stuff with COVID and they shut down for a couple of weeks and um, he did not have a good NCAA. So imagine you're the NCAA and you don't score a single point and you think you're going to make the Olympic team. Like I asked Jake, I said, Jake, this is right after the NCAA and this is in March. And he he goes, I go, Jake, well, why do you want to come home? And without question, no hesitation, he says to make the team. I was like, all right, man, let's go. I'm on board. You know, I've been on board. Let's come home. So you got to come home. He trained, uh, you know, we kind of rebuild his confidence on some level because he'd come off a meet where you're going to go compete against guys who, who beat you and you didn't even get top 16. So, you know, we're, we're coming into a meet and he's excited, but he's nervous. He's not sure. We haven't really done a, a real long course meet in a long time. He shows up the four and free. His event is on the first day. It's the second event. Um, and he comes out and, uh, he makes the final gets in a good lane. And then like, when you're thinking you're going to make the Olympic team, you're only thinking, I guess got to get top two. I got to get top two. So with about 50 to go, he's in fifth. And again, somehow, some way he gets his hand on his wall second, but he doesn't get the time that you need to go to the Olympics. And like, everyone's crazy and so happy for us, but I'm like, he didn't get the time. So what do we do now? Well, it turns out he gets a time trial, which is unheard of. They've never done a time trial from USA Swimming, but USA Swimming did it right. And I'm going to have this time trial. It's never been done. And they gave us some options because um, you got, there was like eight or nine guys that got to do this time trial. And they said, well, when do you want to do this time trial? And everyone else is like, well, we want to do it Friday, 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 Friday. And Jake says, I want to go Tuesday, which was like two days. I'm like, okay, Tuesday. And everyone looks at me because all the coaches were like, what, Tuesday? Why are you going so early? And Jake was like, he's making this team. And everyone was like, okay. But then I texted Jake and go, Jake, you're going to go alone. Are you good with that? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm making this team. So USA Swimming gets this time trial. They tell us it's going to be at the end of the night on uh, on Tuesday night. So they do the whole finals. You know, everyone's, you know, I'm nervous because I'm like, are people going to stick around for this? It's after the finals. And everyone was like, yeah, people are going to stay. They've asked people to stay. So 
I'm like, we're, we're warming up in the back and the meets over like 15 minutes early. I'm like, are they going to like, are people going to stick around? And everyone's like, just swim, just warm them up, get them up there. So Jake gets up there, crowds going crazy. They're excited. I'm a little nervous. Jake's back there. There's one chair behind the block. Like usually there's eight chairs, right? With people, there's there's just one chair, and it's just Jake walking out. Like I've never seen anything like it. So I know he's nervous, but if you know Jake and watched him race, he likes to take it out. And so Jake takes it out. He's at the fifty. He's out in like twenty five seconds, which is ridiculous. And I'm like, oh man, what is he doing? But at the same time, I'm like, this is what he has to do. He turns at the hundred, and people are like, well, that's fast. But you know, the coaches around me are like, that's a little too fast. But crowd kind of gets excited about the 200 he holds it together he's out incredibly fast and every time he did a flip turn the people in the stands this is you know in a basketball arena loads of fans around with a swimming pool inside and they're going crazy so Mm -hmm. every time he's turning at 50 meters they got louder and louder so at the 250 louder 300 louder i'm like he's gonna do this he's gonna do this the 50 to go. I knew he had it in the bag. Everyone did. They're all cheering on their, on their, all on their feet, clapping, cheering, and he gets the wall and he makes the time to go. And it was a, an incredible moment, um, you know, for that young man. And I'm just incredibly proud of him for, you know, the conviction he had to do a time trial by himself. I'm like, that's an Olympian. That was an Olympic moment. And that was to me, I mean, if you can ask other, other people, but that was, the defining moment at the Olympic trials for USA swimming. Uh, and, and then to go on and make a final, like everyone else was, he was like, all right, he made the team. I'm like, he's going to win a medal. And so for, you know, he made, he makes the final at the Olympic games, which he ended up getting eighth, but still he made the final. He kept going faster. So special moment, you know, it's a culmination of, you know, his whole career, but uh, just to have the conviction to say, I'm going to do this regardless of the circumstances was just uh, it's an incredible Incredible moment for, for the program, for him. And just, uh, I'm happy to, an honor to be, to be his coach. What's that like being a coach uh, in that moment and watching that, that happen? I mean, this, the emotions that go through you, I mean, it's unparalleled. I've never, ever felt those before. I mean, I was incredibly nervous when he's doing it, but like at the same time I've seen him train. And so part of you is like, I, I just want to see him do what I know he's capable of doing. And I think that's all our, as coaches we're trying to do is just like, especially for someone like him, who, you know, has put in the work, you just want to be like, just go show everybody what you're capable of. So to have those moments come out, it's just, it's just special. Go into the details about what made Jake special day in and day out, the details, the things that he would take care of. I mean, what, what can you share with us about, about him? Well, Jake is a humble, uh, incredibly hardworking. In, in many ways, he just refuses to lose. And Jake, in many ways, in his career at Carmel High School, um, he is his freshman and sophomore. He was behind Drew and Jake. Uh, sorry, Drew and, and Wyatt Davis. So Drew killed Wyatt Davis. And so I remember, you know, another, I think another moment in Jake's kind of career with me watching him. I was giving him this set and I gave Jake, uh, sorry, I gave Drew and Wyatt one interval and I gave Jake a second interval and Jake's interval is a little bit slower than Wyatt and Drew's. Jake was pissed. He didn't, but here's the thing. He didn't say anything to me. So I've asked, I asked Jake to go 155 and I asked Drew and Wyatt to go on 150. And so every time they got to the wall, Jake was going 149 and those other guys were going, you know, pretty much the same time, but he didn't say a word the whole set. And afterwards I go, Hey, I guess I should have put you on, on a, he goes, hell yeah, you should have. And so, you know, it was like, he's like, I'm going to defy you. Don't underestimate me. Um, and just his like consistency to be there. And like, he would come back after, after his freshman year, he had not a good junior nationals. And I told him, I said, a year from now, you are going to make waves and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be here at this meet being a champion. And he was like, he, he told me today or, you know, the other day he goes like, that's, I, you told me that. And I thought you were crazy, but I just seen the things, just the consistency, the drive, the refuse to lose, 
but he would have fun doing it. Like he enjoyed the guys. He enjoyed the fellas. Uh, he pushed people to be better. He just, a, a just a humble young man, great family. Um, you know, I remember too, he, it would be meets and he'd be like, Hey, uh, you know, I got to figure out how to go to church in between prelims and finals. My mom's going to take me if you were on a team travel trip. So he was just dedicated, uh, and committed and, you know, it, it's hard to put into words, but like just that, the, that, re, that refusal to lose or to submit, I think is what he had that I've seen few other people have. Mm-hmm. Can you, cause I love that. I've always seen with athletes, like if you challenge them like that, right. And again, in life, I mean, you tell somebody that's great, you can't do it yeah. in, in one way or another, like in your situation, there's no way you get that ball up and down or you can't do that. And what is it that you think that really, um, that hits them and they, and they rise up to that? Well, you know, I think about sometimes in my career, like that was the most motivating thing for me when someone told me I couldn't do it, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly need people to believe in you, but I think there's, there's a focus that comes from someone doubting you that you need to rise up and you need to demonstrate, no, I really can. Like this person's doubting me. You don't even know what I can do. And there's just an attitude that comes with that and a kind of a, a bravado almost in, in the athletic sense, you know, and watching Jordan, he would make up stories that people were saying were doubting him or whatever. Right. So yeah. He had to concoct his own world to, to motivate himself. But I think it's a motivation. It's a focus. And everything comes down to the story you tell yourself. So if the story you tell yourself is like, yeah, I can do it. You know, this guy's doubting me. It, it channels my inner energy and drive. And I think that's what the best do is it it channels them and focuses them. Not all of them. Like, I don't think Drew refuses to lose, but he, he, he searches a little bit different. He's more in search of perfection in being an artist with it and trying to hone his technique and be driven to be his best and put himself out there in different ways. So, you know, he was a master in a different world, but they're all trying to be masters of something. And they're not afraid to use their strengths to make them the best they can be. And I do think there's a few ways to get there, but all the best have this ability to focus and channel their, their inner drive when that, when that moment comes. Yeah. In terms of, you know, because at the level that uh, swimmers come to you and they, I mean, they, it, there's, there's a standard that you set, you know, as the coach and that standard is really high. I mean, it's not just the state championships. I mean, it's a national level. What do you see that's different from those that are okay just getting by and those that really, really want to excel? What do you, what do you think that difference is? Well, I mean, I think you said it. It is the standard they set for themselves. Um, what is your standard and whatever standard you set for yourself, that's the level you're going to rise to, or that's the level you're going to meet. And I think there's uh, partly a subconscious part of that. But here's what I tell people, you know, especially athletes at the beginning of the year, we do goal meetings. And when I first started coaching, I kind of watched it happen. And now I understand it, but they'd be like, I want to make the state meet or I want to swim in the state meet. And guess what? They do. They swim in the state meet. And they swim in prelims on Friday night and they don't make it back and they're mad. And I go, you got exactly what you wanted. You wanted to swim in this meet. You didn't say I want to swim in the finals. You didn't say I wanted to win. You didn't say I wanted to get faster every time. You told yourself you wanted to swim in this meet and you got it. So you have to be clear. And I think the best are very clear about what they want and the standards they're willing to hold themselves to. And if they don't, they also know how to adjust and figure it out that way too. And um, I just feel like they have a clear vision of in the standard they're able to set for themselves and live up to it. Yeah, it's so it's so awesome, Coach. I'm glad you said that because a lot of times, like uh, I'll talk with golfers, right, and you know what's their goal and, and determine determine at what level they're at, right? Yep. And it's not very rarely do they say to win a major. They say to make it to the PJ Tour. And there are a lot that can make it to the PJ Tour, but then they have to mentally adjust because the drive that that gets them there isn't going to keep them there. Yeah. And yeah, they rely on their habits, but um, I'm so glad you say that because I think that's so important, right? Like the limits that we put are on ourselves. Yeah, they're self-induced, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you have courage and perseverance as a couple of those words that uh, that are really important, and, and you always emphasize those. But talk to us about those, and why are they so important? Yeah, well, I mean, they're the um, you know the values of the team of, of Carmel Slim Club: courage and perseverance, and FTT are for the team. But you know, I think courage and perseverance. It's interesting. If you go back in time, George Washington talked about in the Revolutionary War, how courage and perseverance uh, helped them win the war. And I think about how those two words have stood the test of time. But I think it's the courage to take a risk, to step out of your comfort zone, to be willing to try things that you're not sure you can do. Uh, It takes courage to to swim. It takes courage to step on the block. It takes courage to stand up, um, to, to do the right thing. And then there's perseverance, which is you have to keep going. And in our sport and swimming, you're going to have highs and lows. You're going to be challenged to keep going and you have to learn how to endure the tough times. Um, the people doubting you, the people questioning you, the questioning of yourself and the perseverance to keep on going. Um, I just feel like, you know, I think uh, courage and perseverance are a magic talisman before which all obstacles disappear. And I well, think can about you say that again, coach. That was yeah, sure. there, man. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think John Adams said that. So, courage and perseverance are a magic talisman for for which all obstacles disappear. And I don't. I probably butchered that a little bit, but um, I know, like I've seen the. I remember. When I first became head coach, I read 1776 and it's a thick book, but I'm, you know, I'm a reader. I get up in the morning and I read different books and I'm, you know, I'm a history guy and, and a business guy and, I, and I'll, I'll read just about everything. So every 30 minutes, you know, 30 minutes a morning and I'm reading this book, you know, it takes a while, 30 minutes a day to get through one of these longer books. But like at the very end, I just started becoming, you know, just became head coach and at the back of the book, was that courage and perseverance from George Washington. And I was like, man, it's just like hit home. Like I'm in the right place. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I didn't pick up that book to, to read that, but then it just kind of like brings everything together for me. Yeah. And I love that one, man, because, you know, kind of evolving even throughout my career is like, uh, you know, no fear, right? Like you got to be fearless and stuff like that. And I've, I'm really against that now. I think you got to be brave. You have to be brave. You got to put yourself out there and, and be brave. Yeah, I, I believe there's a difference between uh, between no fear and brave because we are we having fear is a normal part of being human. What are you going to do in response to that? And I do think that's where bravery and courage come in. You know, I think about Jake. He had to have courage to say, "I'm going to be an Olympian." I mean, that takes courage. You got to say that out there in front of people and in front of your coach. But to mean it, like that takes courage. Um, you know, kids get on the block in a race at the high school state meet. It takes courage. Like you're nervous. You're in front of a lot of people. So um, I agree. I agree 100%. You know, I think there's so many different paths like we could take in this podcast. And I think what what excites me about you is you know, you, you embody the characteristics that you ask from your swimmers, right. To be coachable, to, you know, I mean, be consistent, to have courage, to have perseverance, you know, part of your journey was learning from all these great coaches. Wasn't like being on deck. I mean, what's a story you can share with us, you know, whether it was like Richard quick or John or Van check or something. I mean, that, that really hit home for you as a coach. Yeah, well, um, I'm always a learner and I'm always hungry. Um, I have so many stories, but I'll, I'll try to get it to two. You know, I think first is um, I was relentless to learn and I was just going to figure it out. And um, there's a book called Third Door that I highly recommend reading because it just is like this idea of like, you're going to figure it out. Um, but this was my third door moment. So um, I got invited by Speedo to play in the Michael Phelps golf tournament in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm like, this is cool. What but year was this? 
Oh, I would say so. Michael, honestly, I think it was uh, between twelve and sixteen, so probably two thousand thirteen. Okay. Um, and Michael, yeah, I got invited to his golf tournament, but I really wanted to be on the pool deck at North Baltimore. I wanted to, to talk to Bob Bowman. I wanted to see how things were run. I wanted to see the home where Michael Phelps like trained and learned. Mm-hmm. They had Olympians after Olympians, and that's what I was aspiring to be—an Olympic coach. And I I remember emailing Bob twice to say, Hey, can I get on your pool deck? No answer. No answer. I booked my plane ticket two days after the golf tournament because I'm like, I'm good. I I will stick around and figure out how to get on this pool deck. And even to the day we're we're playing around a golf, I'm like, well, you know, Bob didn't talk to me. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to get on this, you know, get a moment you know, to figure this out because otherwise I'd be sticking around in Baltimore for two more days. And, uh, I, on the 17th green, one of the assistant coaches said to me, he goes, Hey, Chris, you can come to practice tomorrow. I was like, Oh, thank God. So, um, you know, just, I got on the pool deck there. The other moment for me, it was the same type of thing. Brian Barnes, a good friend of mine was coaching at Auburn and Richard quick had just taken over for David Marsh down at Auburn and I got to do, I was like, Brian, what do I do? I want to come down and learn. I'm, I'm hungry. I think this is like probably 08 or 09. I just need to figure out how to be better. And he's like, come down and work swim camp. And I, I was went down to swim camp for Auburn and just watching these guys, the elite guys uh, and Caesar's Cielo, I think is, he was definitely won gold in the 50, had the world record in the 50, watching him train, watching uh, coach Brett Hawk work with him. But Richard stood out to me. He was coaching swim camp to these little nine, 10, 11 year olds. He lays on his back in his shirt at, you know, he's like 65. He lays on his back on this wet pool deck to demonstrate kids how to do a streamline the right way. And I was like, here's this guy, 65 Olympic coach has everything he needs working his butt off to teach little kids how to streamline better. And I'm like, there's something there I want to be able to have that energy and passion that he has at 65 all the way through my coaching career, because there's just, again, that passion that you need to have. Like it wasn't an accident to me. It was like, it's not an accident that he was a great coach, right? You, he didn't, he earned his way there and he was earning it every single day. And I think that's what you have to be as a coach. Yeah, I dig that one, man. I remember when Rowdy Gaines was talking the story um, in uh, 84 and Richard Quick went and told him and said, you know, this is a very fast starter. Like you got to be ready. Yeah. And that totally made the difference from him winning gold and, and silver, man. And it's something just like that, right? Like, I mean, as a coach, <sighs> You meet, I guess, with this, right? Like mediocrity and greatness, like they do not like each other at all, right? Like mediocre, like hates greatness because it shows them like what's possible. And greatness, like hates mediocrity, right? Because it's like, you know, what what are we really doing? Um, can you talk about that, like in in your experience of what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think, I I think we always like to say too, misery loves company, so those who aren't happy won't, won't, won't be, but like, I think honestly, I, I look at it too. I mean, when you're at Carmel, the success comes with so many, I don't know a better way to put it. It's just haters. Like you guys got this or you got that, you know, it's just so easy for you guys. And you know, it's just the opposite is true. Like we have to earn it every day. And like, we have to resist the mediocrity that is out there. And those, those two things are polar opposites, but it's so easy to slide into this. I, I often think the difference, I, I would have probably equated it a different way, the difference between good and great. A lot of people want to be good and a lot of people can be good. There's a huge difference between good and great. And that's where all the juice is, man. Like, it's, like the people that don't, that don't accept that, that that was good enough, Oh, that's good enough. We'll be done. That start was good enough. That was be that'll be done. And I imagine it's the same thing on the golf course. Oh, that chip. I you know I got that chip down. I'm good enough. Like, no, you've got to do it again and again and again and again. Like excellence requires you to be, be able to do it on your worst day, 
not your best day. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be able to do it under the most challenging of circumstances, not just when everything's going your way. And so that consistency is to me, the biggest difference between mod, you know, being good and great and um, mediocrity. Yeah. Like I, I just don't have a place for that in my life. And um, I try to excel at everything I do, but I also humble enough to know, like, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to get it perfect, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn. I'm going to figure out how to be better. And that's all we can ask of anybody in our lives of these athletes that we coach and what we do. So we would need to help them see that they are capable of doing great things and you can learn how to be great. It's not given, it's earned. Mm-hmm. How do champions that you've seen, they've, they've had a setback but they make the adjustment. What what do you see that they kind of navigate that that headspace and then being able to put that into play? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Rob. But I, I think it's this idea that I can I could. This is a problem to be solved, and I am hungry enough, and I have enough desire to figure out how to solve this problem. Um, and I think it's just not accepting that that's okay. Like I can't be okay with that, with that performance. Cause I know I'm better, but I also, I think they accept responsibility for not performing like they wanted to. And I think there are people in this world and, and athletes that want to blame somebody else for their issues, but the best athletes take ownership of their own sport, of their own athleticism, of their own goals. And when they truly make it their own, that's when I see great things happen. And when they take responsibility for their mistakes, that's when you see this great improvement too, because it is theirs. And then when it is theirs, then it becomes special. And that's when truly great things can happen. Yeah. Do you have an example of that coach that kind of stands out to you where someone really took ownership? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I have to probably think about a little bit, but you know, I look at, I mean, I don't, I feel like Drew Kibler takes a lot of ownership of, 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 of things that have happened or becomes a little short. He's like, he's never happy. <laughs> like he loves to swim, but he's on his quest. But, um, you know, I know, I know, like, I think I've watched Drew figure out how to, to make improvements in, in seasons. Right. And so I remember, I remember I challenged him. Like, here's a guy that he, when he wants to be good at something, he he goes and figures it out and he'll own it too. Like if he doesn't, if, if he doesn't get there. Um, so I remember him like, well, I want to win the hundred fly this year. And so we, I think we swam it. Yeah, juniors or something and goes, well, that wasn't good. I didn't, I didn't take enough kicks off that wall and I had a bad turn and I got to get my start better. And so, um, what was cool was like over those three months, he spent so much time fixing his start, fixing his butterfly turn, working on his underwaters just to be able to execute this hundred fly at the high school championship meet. So, he took responsibility for figuring out how to, how to get better. And then he like, he used me as his guide to help him. Like, is that good enough? Where do you think we need to go? So it was always a plan to figure out and correct the things from, from one meet to the next. Hey there. Good looking. If you're digging this podcast and check out our book, puke and rally, it's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. Just go to pukeandrallybook.com. Now back to the show. So with, Failure is always going to be a, a huge teacher, right? I mean, you've seen it, right? I mean, those that then that come back hungry because of that pain. How do you navigate success, you know, as a coach? And then how do you help your athletes that, I mean, the, they get the pats on the back, they get the the standard, they get the, the carrot, right? Like they get where they want to go. Um, but there's always, again, that next level. So how do you balance that navigating success? Well, I, I feel like we have to be to be careful, but it's also what defining what success is. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we will, we want to make sure we're rewarding the attitude and effort that comes and the success is just a result of you actually following the process to get there. But the process for how you get success, that's what we always need to keep in mind. How did you get there? What were the clues or the things that you were doing when you're having success? And I think a lot of people, when they have a bad season, oh, I, would, I did this, this, and this, and this. I'm like, well, let's talk about what you did when you are at your best. What are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you acting? How are you breathing? How do we get that back? Instead of like trying to correct and fix your errors, like from this place of negativity, let's work from a place when you are at your best. And how do we bring that attitude and bring that out of you more? What were the things that we were doing then? And I picked that up hearing about Andre Agassi. And used um, Andre, you know, and they were talking to him and they were showing him tape of tennis and, um, you know, I think he walked out and he he played bad and it, and they asked him, well, what were you thinking? And he goes, well, I was thinking like, I'm going to lose. Uh, I don't feel good. My backhand's not right. My forehand, I'm not feeling right. And they showed him a match where he played well and he dominated. And he asked, well, what were you thinking that day? And he goes, he goes, I walked out and I was like, this guy doesn't even know what's coming. Right. Like is so it had really nothing to do with his opponent. It had everything to do with what he was thinking about himself in that moment. So trying to get him to get that attitude was the goal of the coach to bring the attitude each and every day that he did when he had the attitude and he knew he felt good against an opponent. And I think success leaves clues and we got to continue to find what works and what doesn't and adjust. And let's, let's, let's find those places where people are, are doing things well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly yeah and i'm glad i was going to put that in there if you didn't man but success does leave clues right yeah and and, you know and i I know you know going out and 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 playing golf is like how do i find a good headspace where my swing's feeling right and you know what putt what did i do on that day where i was what space was i in when i was playing well and what what do i need to do to get back to that and what are the what was my attitude and and those things. And I think it's the same thing in the pool or probably anywhere, but basketball, like when you're playing well, when you're doing well, you should remember those times. Don't just poo poo those. Like, I think people don't give themselves enough credit sometimes when they are doing it well. Like they want to, they want to focus on the negative sometimes, but just like, Hey, I did that. Well, let me take some notes. Let me take some things. Like I did these things. Well, I need to have a journal of things I'm doing well. Uh, and not always just, you certainly got to work on your weaknesses, but remembering what you do well is just as important. Mm-hmm. Amen to that, man. You know, I, I, I kind of say like back in the day. <laughs> so back in the day, I really think coach, it was like 2005, 2006, because I mean, think about how much has changed right in those 15 years, but what, what's the biggest lesson that you think you've learned, you know, in these last 10, 15 years as a coach? Well, I, I feel like the biggest thing I've learned is that what are the standards I'm I'm willing to set for this program for my athletes and living into those standards and giving myself permission to be uh, and have a successful program and redefining what that is. And I think whatever you accept as your limitations, that's what, that's what's going to happen. And when I first started, um, I didn't have like this. I thought I wanted that, but I didn't know how to get there. And it was coaching people. Just like I said earlier, I was coaching people to, to make the meet, right. To make the Olympic trials. I wasn't coaching people to win international medals. And I know this was true, but I think you got to take steps because my goal is to have Olympians. I never said I want to have Olympians to win medals. And and I know that moving forward, I got we got to change our thinking. Um, you know, I think there's also the athlete side. Athlete today is incredibly informed as to what is out there in the world. The social media landscape, they know times from everybody. You can look up their times on meets. Like that didn't exist when I was swimming in the early 2000s. I think it maybe kind of came around, but you didn't know what everyone else was doing across the country. I remember my friend would just come over and read the swimming world and be like, look at these times from this meet. Like it was in a, it was in a magazine. Now it's like, 
you know, something happens, it's on Twitter instantly. This guy breaks a world record. It's up on, you know, and there's a 17 year old guy from Romania breaking the junior world record in the hundred free. Everybody knows about it within one day. And so it's, it's a tough balance now because like when you were growing up, you didn't know that existed. So you didn't compare yourself to them. So you kind of lived in your own world. So there's good and bad. Now they're like, well, you know, I, I rank, I'm the 99th best hunter freestyler in the country. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's always good because there's no sense of like, I'm good for my community. I, you know, I'm, I'm giving back. Like there's always this kind of comparison that I don't think was happening before. And, um, I, and I think that social media landscape on so many ways has changed uh, today's landscape. How do you help your athletes navigate through that? I mean, it just comes back to, we've got to focus more and more on the things we can control. Mm -hmm. And I try to tell them to get off the social media. I don't know if that's, that's going to help. Uh, they're going to get on it. They're going to get on their phones. It's keeping them up at night. I wish they would go to bed earlier. Like sleep we know is just so vital for success and what's keeping them up. It's the phones. So, you know, it's just education um, and learning and like, let's let's be here with each other and be present and make this the best place we can be and recognizing that every time we get on our phone we're talking to somebody we it takes us away from that i do think the good thing about swimming is is every day they have to go um a couple hours without their phone and i do think there's it's kind of freeing in so many ways that they don't have to be attached to their phone and they can work for their success. And I think swimming and I think sport, this is what's so great about sport today is that they're not getting that instant gratification. They are in every other spot of their life. Like you want to know something, look it up. You want to order food, go on your phone. There's an app, someone's delivering you food. Um, you know, check your email on your phone, check Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. So in sport, it takes time to be and have success. And I think ultimately I still believe in that hard work, perseverance, courage, overcoming tough times. Those are the values that sport can teach. And that's just so important to, to be able to do that for our youth. Mm -hmm. Coach. And I know we've talked a little bit about it, but what's, what's a hinge moment that happened in your life that you can share? Yeah. Well, I remember, um, I mean, for me, I think my, future really changed when um, I was, I had a half a semester left at Indiana University and the high school coaching job opened up at Bloomington South. And I was like, well, oh, you know, I'm here. I might as well take it. It just sounds like fun. When you're there, you got to pay for an apartment year round. And so I was kind of locked in. So I became the Bloomington High School South head swim coach I had no idea what I was getting into. Somehow I convinced the athletic director, even though I hadn't graduated college that I want that I could, I could do it. And uh, I mean, that moment for me changed the tra trajectory of my life. I was going to go to medical school and I'd taken the MCAT and I'd done all those things, but man, did I just fall in love with coaching? And I knew I loved swimming, but coaching was just an opportunity to give back and something that I was so passionate about and to make a difference in people's lives and to, and to do that and to feel that, um, obviously I'm here today. So that was, uh, a long time ago, right? <laughs> it was in the late nineties. So that moment for me changed everything. That's a good one, man. Did the AD come to you and say, you know, we really weren't going to hire you. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I don't know. It was, it's, uh, it just makes me laugh. I look back at all the mistakes I made when I first started coaching, like the first team meeting, I wrote every word for my, for my like initial meeting with the team. I wrote it all out on pen and paper and like repeated it word for word in front of the team. And, and to this day, the guys on the team still laugh at me for, you know, reading a word for word. That's how nervous I was in front of these people. Um, but you know, I think I, you know, those are great kids. The AD, you know, we had a great season. We had a lot of fun and, um, you know, we got, I remember getting kicked off. We were playing, uh, playing ultimate Frisbee on the football field and coach Mo, um, 
kicked us off the off the tee off the field because we were it was too muddy and he didn't want us ruining his football field. So I was already making mistakes very young in my coaching career. I love it, man. Um, I've I've noticed this with coaches that they would take coaching over their sport any day of the week. Like it wouldn't matter, right? If you were coaching ultimate or chess, like they loved coaching so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just love, love the opportunity to just to help. Like, and I think my whole coaching career is like, how can I help people better? What are ways for me to improve helping somebody? And I just feel like that's, and that was ingrained with me. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. Like they came from a place of uh, helping people. My grandmother was a psychiatrist. She helped people. Those are the people in my life that helped shape me. And my, you know, just the opportunity to give back and to have an influence on others in a positive way. I just, it, it, just resounds in me deeply and you know we'll go play golf and you know they'll try to in a nice way help people with their swing or something like that or remember playing basketball my brother was a basketball coach and teacher so you know he had it in him too so there's just we just love this opportunity in a way to like sport is so important to me I guess, I don't know if I would help someone play chess, but like, I'm always, I love teaching. I love helping and it's just who I am. Yeah. I think you'd be a great chess teacher, coach. <laughs> I've had to learn how to play chess a little bit better. Chess My brother's the chess guy. He loves chess, so. I mean, I think you'd still figure it out though, right? It's like, if you took Bill Walsh and, and you put him in charge of the Yankees, you know, I think that's why I kind of like Ted Lasso was kind of like, you know, it, it's funny because I think if you take the best coaches and you put them in different sports, I think they figure it out. Well, yeah, I, I think it gets back to that, that thing we were talking about, just what standard are you going to set? I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Like if you made me basketball coach, golf coach, football coach, I don't know how long it would take me, but I would figure it out. But at the same time, it's going to come back to a few simple things. It is a Ted Lasso thing, relationships, mm-hmm. relationships over rules, right? Who, who you, you need to have rules for your team. But the relationships you have with your coaches, with your athletes, with your administrators, those are the things that are going to make a difference in the lives. And those are the things that are going to last and help people in the long run. So valuing the relationships that you have in in relationship building, right? Like creating a team, creating a positive team culture. Those things are incredibly important. And those things can carry and transfer across broad domains in terms of coaching. The X's and O's, yeah, you have to figure those things out. But, um, you know, coaching is coaching. Mm -hmm. I think that's what impressed me so much about like the last dance and watching that and watching, you know, Phil Jackson was, you know, imagine that, right? Like you're letting one of your players go off to Vegas because you know he's a renegade and he's going to, he's going to, he's going to explode if he doesn't, right? Where you got Michael Jordan, who now you have to navigate him and Scotty. Wait, yeah, we let Dennis Rodman go, you know, for this weekend, even though he didn't come back in time. I mean, that man, you got to have great relationships, I think, with your players to be able to, um, you know, make that work. Yeah, hundred percent. And the thing I, you know, watching Phil because that's, I mean, I've let it, I've read his book, Eleven Rings. Yep. Um, and I, you know, I paid very close attention to how he handled things in his own words. Obviously, you know, I, I watched those things with a you know grain of salt because I know you're going to not hear everything that goes on. Sure. But um, you know, I he was so humble about it, and he was about one thing and making a team, a cohesive working team, and that's all he cared about. I don't think he cared about the titles, the money, all those things that came with it. I mean, honestly, he would rather live on his one, you know, ranch in Montana on, on his, on his Harley, right. than do anything else. So he, I think what made him great was recognizing that it wasn't about him. And I think the great coaches understand that it's not about them, um, that it's about your players. It's about your team and the team comes first. Yeah. Coach, one more question. What question should I be asking you that that I just haven't asked? 
That's a good question. You know, um, let's see. Well, you've already asked me the Bills question, so. Um, yeah, what, what questions should you be asking? I think, you know, you, sh- you should ask me what's the secret to success at Carmel. Oh, okay. The secret is there, there is no secret, right? comes back to all the things we talked about, hard work, belief, standards. Um, but, you know, I get asked that question a lot. Like, what's the secret to success at Carmel? And like, there, there just aren't secrets, you know, everything, yeah. everything's out there today. You just gotta, you gotta figure it out. I, I bet too. Cause I kind of got excited. <laughs> like, Oh, we're going to hear something new. I wish I had something new. You asked a lot of great questions. So I think, uh, I think we came out of them. If there was, let me ask one more then coach. I'll pull the Colombo trick, right? Just, just one more question. If you had advice for parents, regardless of sport, uh, what what advice would you give them that, you know, have an athlete and they want them to do well? Just love your kid unconditionally. Let them figure it out. Obviously, they're, you know, the older they get, the more they become. But this is about them and their their sport and their ownership. Do not do not make it about you. Um, let your kids talk to the coaches. Let your own it, you know, let them feel responsible for themselves. And the more that parents do for their athletes, the, I think in the long run, the less chance you are giving them for success. Um, so obviously it scales, right? It's different between eight to 12, 12 to 14 in high school. But, you know, to me, the high school athlete that, that can own their sport, that can talk to the parent about, or sorry, talk to the coach about their entries, talk to the coach about their goals that can talk to the coach like, Hey, I'm not going to be at practice instead of mom and dad emailing and trying to solve every problem as it comes up. Um, I think that's, that's um, what I would be telling parents and like, let your kids figure it out. Let the coaches coach. Um, It's getting harder and harder these days with parents because they have uh, access to us that, you know, they expect things and they're putting pressure on their athletes. I think a lot of times undue pressure, you know, if people don't figure it out how to go fast within a couple months or go best time, they miss, you know, they miss a season where they're not performing well. I, I think many parents are a little too quick to pull the plug on things and oh, let's go to this program. Let's try this. You know, why isn't this working instead of being like, well, what did your, what did you, what did your athlete do? Did they show up every day? Did they, were they giving all their all and why weren't they? And let's work on this problem together rather than just so quick to, to blame coaches. Yeah. It's fantastic coach. I, I think it's about creating the kid for the path and not trying to shape the path for the kid. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Coach. Um, thanks so much, man, for, for joining the podcast and, you know, obviously, I mean, we'll be in touch, but I wish you the most success, man, but thanks so much for coming on, man, and sharing it. Thank you, Dr. Bell. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.